Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. These podcasts usually take a day or two to write, but this one came out in one quick two-hour session because it's on a subject I know a bit about. Torture. Torture is back in the news in America, and I wish it wasn't. Gina Haspel, Donald Trump's nominee to run the CIA, had her confirmation hearings this week. She oversaw a black site in Thailand where torture took place. Haspel is going through the full rituals of Trump-era Washington. Fruitless protest and outrage from those against and outrageous support from those who blindly back the president. Civility is caught in the crosshairs. America's most famous victim of torture and its most eloquent Senator John McCain was insulted live on Fox News. Retired Air Force General Thomas McInerney accused him of breaking under torture. They call him Songbird John, said McInerney. It goes without saying that McInerney has never experienced torture, and McCain did not break in the sense that the Fox commentator meant it. But the real impetus for this podcast came when I read a report in Washington Insider publication The Hill that former Vice President Dick Cheney called for the U.S. to restart its enhanced interrogation techniques, a tortured euphemism. If you spend time reporting conflicts, it's inevitable that your life will intersect with those who have been tortured and those who have tortured. Here are some things to remember whenever torture is being discussed in the abstract, as it has been at Gina Haspel's hearings. Torture is almost never about getting information that could save lives. I can say that with perfect confidence because, in reporting on the IRA, I learned about how that group was organized. They modeled the organization of their units on that used by the Irgun, the Zionist terror group that fought a dirty war against the British in Mandate Palestine at the end of World War II. A typical IRA cell, as in the Irgun, was small, and no one had full knowledge of what other members of the cell were doing, or even who their fellow members were, until the cell was sent on an operation. The reason was simple. If one person was detained, the assumption was they would be harshly interrogated. They would probably give up information, because, here's the truth, almost everybody breaks under torture. The first person I ever met who had been tortured was an Argentine doctor. I must have been about 16. Very impressionable. It was at my cousin's bar mitzvah. He was a colleague of my uncle, and why we ended up talking about this I don't remember. As a young man, this doctor had been part of Che Guevara's organization. He had been arrested, and what he said to me then I can quote almost verbatim 50-plus years later. When they put electrodes on the mucosa of your penis and turn on the electricity, you will tell them anything, even where your mother is hiding. Insurgency leaders know this, and that is why the information flow into their terror cells is strictly rationed. The less information an insurgent has to give up, the better. Another thing that happens when someone is detained, the cell is broken up deactivated. Its security is terminally compromised. This happened with the IRA, and it happens with virtually every other contemporary political terror outfit, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, whatever. This is not something unknown to the authorities, and that is why I can say with perfect confidence that torture is much more about punishment and deterrence than extracting information to save lives. 
when someone lives through the ordeal and is returned to the community, broken physically and mentally, it sends a powerful message. Another thing I know with certainty, once torture infects a political culture, it's hard to eradicate. The Church's Inquisition had already been established for several centuries when Ferdinand and Isabella completed their conquest of Spain in 1492. They made torturing their non-Catholic subjects into conversion a matter of state policy. Spain exported torture as part of its colonial adventures. Torture has been an essential element of political upheaval in Latin America to this day, and in the modern era it has been aided and abetted by the United States. In 1973, American military advisors were present in Chile during the coup against Salvador Allende, the democratically elected president of the country. These advisors and CIA operatives were complicit in the arrest, torture, and murder of thousands of Chilean supporters of Allende and a number of Americans, among them Charles Horman, whose story was made into the film Missing. The infection of torture as punishment and deterrent continued to intersect with American policy throughout the 1980s in Central America. A generation of fascist military men were trained in techniques of torture as a form of terror at the School of the Americas, a CIA U.S. military training center in counterinsurgency techniques. The brutality taught and encouraged there only occasionally came to light when American civilians in places like El Salvador and Guatemala met the same fate as Charles Horman. As punishment, the techniques worked, which is why the struggle to overthrow the American-backed regimes continued, and thousands upon thousands perished. And, as an aside, as a guarantor of stability, torture really doesn't work, as the continuing stream northward to the U.S. of migrants from El Salvador and Guatemala demonstrates. The infection of torture on individuals who commit it is profound. Once a person embraces the idea of torture, they pass into a psychological space where nothing is forbidden. Whatever guilty feelings they might have becomes the source of a neurosis that corrupts the normal feelings of humanity that all people are born with. In Bosnia, five years after the war ended, I was on a hearts and minds patrol with the U.S. Army in a town called Zvornik. In a park just down the hill from one of the most notorious rape hotels from the war, the Hotel Vidakovac, the captain leading the patrol was confronted by a group of angry Serbs. Their leader's face, as he shouted at the American captain, was contorted in a way that I have never seen before and I hope to never see again. He was denying anything happened up the hill at the Hotel Vidakovac. He was a liar. He was lying with a rage that I cannot describe to you, but it was neurotic. It was crazy. Although I did think that looking into a face contorted like that, while completely at the mercy of the person behind it, was a terrible fate, and an experience from which no one could have full recovery. There is another aspect of torture that gives it a hold on people who endorse it. There's always a sexual element. From rape hotels, to the cheap abuse at Abu Ghraib, to the enforced nakedness or semi-undress in which interrogations take place, Torture is arguably the most immoral act committed by civilized people against their fellows, yet somehow it doesn't galvanize us to action. If you're looking for an explanation of why, it could lie in how we respond to the sexually degrading nature of the practice. 
and those who support torture, even if they never come within smelling distance of an interrogation center, become infected with it. The very last story I covered for NPR was the arrest of former Chilean dictator General Augusto Pinochet in London in 1998. A quarter of a century after Pinochet led the coup that overthrew Allende and led to the deaths of thousands of Chileans and made his country a byword for torture, he was arrested on a warrant from Spain by a public prosecutor who wanted to try him for the deaths of several Spanish citizens caught up in the coup. I went out to Belmarsh Prison at the southeastern edge of London where Pinochet, by then in his 80s, was being held. A crowd of Chilean supporters had found their way to Belmarsh and were demanding his release. It was a press circus. I worked my way along the police line, grabbing vox pops from Pinochet's mostly female supporters. Their English wasn't particularly good, a problem on radio, but I did come across a young man who may not even have been born when Pinochet seized power. His English was excellent, and across the police barriers we engaged in a dialogue about torture and politics. Torture is necessary. Chile is going the way of Cuba, he said. But Allende was democratically elected. Well, sometimes people make mistakes. They have to be corrected. But torture? Here's the almost precise answer he gave me. They are our brothers, and we're sorry, but sometimes these things are necessary. A few days later, Parliament was debating what to do about Pinochet, send him to Spain as requested in the warrant or deport him back to Chile. Across the street, there was a different group of Chileans gathered, victims of Pinochet's violence. I found myself talking to a fellow about my age who had been tortured. He was delirious with disbelief that the man responsible for his suffering had finally been confronted with the reality of his crimes. And that's the key, the torturer, the person who orders torture, the voter who supports the policy, do not see what the rest of the world sees, a crime. And sometimes this needs to be forcibly demonstrated by the law. A couple of years later, I made a documentary about the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture here in London. By chance, I met the man who I'd been talking to outside the Houses of Parliament. His name was Luis Munoz. You cannot believe the sounds you make, he told me. You cannot believe a human being can make such a sound. Luis had been part of a left-wing group, and as the coup unfolded, they tried to organize themselves into an underground resistance. His wife, pregnant, disappeared, was never seen again. By the time Luis was arrested, the group had already disintegrated. He had no useful information to give. He had only his body and his spirit to be punished. I won't give you the pornographic details of what he endured. When he was released, he made his way to England and lived on the edge of sanity. And one night, by chance, he met Helen Bamber on the top deck of a London bus. And somehow they got into a conversation about his ordeal. Bamber, a diminutive Jewish woman who had been married for a time to a survivor of Bergen-Belsen, had a theory that the only way to survive the horror of torture was to talk about it, which is much easier said than done. Only then would the victim be able to move beyond the experience. The pair began to meet regularly to talk, and this was the origin of the medical foundation. Luis was the first client. My documentary on the medical foundation won the DuPont Columbia Award, 
And when I went up to accept it, I concluded my speech by quoting Luis Munoz. You do not do these things to other people. I spoke the words more in hope and the emotion of the moment. The U.S. does do these things to other people. All over the world, people, on behalf of their governments, do these things to other people. Even as you were listening to this podcast, someone, somewhere in the world, was being tortured. Just remember why, and please, don't be fooled by any arguments about torture is necessary for national security whenever you hear about it. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Torture is a difficult subject. I'm sorry. But if you'd like me to put my documentary about the Medical Foundation online, it does have some uplifting stories of survival. Drop me a line through the contact tab at the website www.goldfarbpod.com and let me know. And while you're there, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.